but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then from Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. We're beginning this summer a study of Colossians, one of my favorite little uh, letters of Paul. And uh, it's an unusual letter in that he is writing not to a church that he himself had planted. This was, uh, is thought to be a plant of the church at Ephesus that Paul did plant. And it was planted, as we'll see, by a, a man named Epaphras, whom I will probably from time to time call Epaphras because I grew up hearing it pronounced that way. And, uh, but it's the proper pronunciation is Epaphras. Uh, Epaphras, uh, as we will see, was one who had uh, visited Paul and we know that later he was a fellow prisoner with Paul so he may actually have been in prison with Paul at this point. Paul is writing from prison, and if you were to go to the final chapter, chapter four, and read, you would see that in this case, during this part of his imprisonment, he is surrounded by a contingent of pretty high power Christians, uh, some of them his disciples, uh, some of them other friends that would travel with him, uh, there with him as he'll say, and I'm going to read it in a moment, as he will tell us in, in the introduction, uh, Timothy's with him. And it may well have been Timothy that transcribed this. Paul, we know, had the practice of dictating his letters. And uh, it's interesting to picture him walking around and someone there trying to keep up with his thought. Uh, but this is not like another letter that he wrote to a church he had not planted, Romans. In the case of Romans, he was writing to introduce himself and his teaching and preparing them for his coming to them. 
And so we have a comprehensive statement of Paul's theology in Romans. Uh, in this letter, Paul is writing to a kind of grandchild church of his in order to address problems that they're facing. And the problems uh, were not problems as he sometimes addressed where the gospel was being set aside or reduced. Indeed, the opposite problem was taking place. Uh, teachers had gone to Colossae and were encouraging them that the gospel in itself was insufficient and Christ in himself was insufficient, that they needed more things. They needed secret wisdom and knowledge. They needed practices of asceticism and discipline and the celebration of certain days and all kinds of things to be added in order to enter into a deeper spiritual state. So Paul, surrounded by, I mean, some of the people who were with him, it's, it's astonishing. Uh, they, we see them with him on his journeys. Tychicus, who carries this letter, uh, is, is taking the letter to Colossae on Paul's behalf, appears in Acts as a fellow uh, companion of Paul's, as does Onesimus. Uh, Onesimus was a slave who had run away from his master Philemon, and the little letter from Paul to Philemon is a letter basically guilt-tripping Philemon into setting his slave free and treating him like a Christian brother. Paul doesn't actually ask him to, but he says, I could ask you to, and shouldn't you treat him as your brother? Uh, so Onesimus is there with Paul. Uh, Mark, who wrote what is considered the earliest gospel, is there. Barnabas's cousin. And it's good news because we know in Acts that Mark was the cause of Barnabas and Paul breaking up and going their own ways. Barnabas sailed away with Mark and Paul linked up with Silas and Silas became his companion for his later missionary journeys. But now we see that the gospel has brought these two back together and Mark is there visiting with Paul in prison. Another gospel writer is there, Luke. Dr. Luke is there with him and uh, the author of the gospel according to Luke and of Acts. So these and others are all there. So when you think about this letter and of Paul writing it, he's surrounded uh, by Christian brothers and sisters and is getting tremendous encouragement. I think it really flows in to this letter as he seeks to address the situation there. So that's enough background. Colossae, where was it? It was in what then was called Asia Minor. Today it's Turkey. It was near Ephesus and Laodicea and some of the other cities that you may be more familiar with. So Colossians beginning with verse one, we're going to read through verse 14. And because I've already given you background, we're going to really focus in on verses three through 14, those 12 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world 
it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here we have one of Paul's most remarkable prayers recorded for us. If we want to learn to pray, we have the Lord's Prayer, of course, which is misnamed Jesus' Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is John 17, his high priestly prayer. But what he taught his disciples is the disciples' prayer, our Father in heaven. He said, pray like this, and he gives us a beautiful outline of how to pray. And then we see the examples recorded in the gospel of Jesus' own prayers. But he had a unique relationship with the Father, one that he invites us into. But I must say that for me, the most instructive prayers are the two found in Ephesians and this one that I just read. He is showing us how to pray powerful, effective prayers. My old late friend, uh, who for Ben Hayden, who for many years pastored uh, First Presbyterian Chattanooga and had a national television show called Change Lives, had a very folksy way. He'd been a lawyer before the Lord got a hold of him. When, when the Lord gets a hold of a lawyer, he makes him a preacher. Sorry. <laughs> um, so he w had a very folksy way, but I remember he would say from time to time or ask his congregation, do you have a two-bit prayer life? Why? So I'd ask you Ben's question this morning. Is your prayer life even beginning to approach where you want it to be? And if not, why not? Because there is no greater privilege that God has given us than intimate communion with him, the ability to go without priest or pastor or spiritual director or anyone else, simply going through his son in the strength of his spirit to the Father and to make our requests known and to know, as Paul said in Romans 8, that even when we don't know exactly how to pray or what to pray, the Spirit takes our unutterable groanings in God's presence and groans with us and turns those into prayers according to the will of God. In other words, God is more eager to hear our prayers 
and to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we would ask or dare imagine than we are to ask or imagine. And Paul is showing us here how to pray. So I want to just ask three questions of these verses. And the first is, why does he pray with such thanksgiving and gratitude? He's writing this letter because this church has enough problems to get a guy who's in prison to stop and write a letter trying to correct error. Now, I must confess, whenever I read Paul's letters from prison, I always think, if I were in prison facing the possibility of Nero's judgment, would I be worrying about what's going on in some church, especially a church that I hadn't ever even met, like Colossae? If I'd been writing letters, they probably would have been to friends that I thought had some political influence. Could you help get me out of here so that I can do some good for somebody? But Paul everywhere saw himself as there in the service of the Lord, there to bring him glory, there to continue his ministry. And so that in itself is instructive. The other thing that I would simply point out before we start looking is, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to pray about problems, I usually just cut right to the chase. <laughs> you know, Lord, I don't have a lot of time today, and I suspect you don't either, but there's a situation that, <laughs> that you really need to look at. If you could just, you know, this needs your attention right now. And Paul never prays like that. It doesn't mean that there's anything that we can't bring to our Father. He cares about the things that trouble us. But when I pray too often, and I must confess when I hear you all pray, too often it's about who's sick, who's out of work, who's this. Well, of course we pray for those things and care. But those are PSs to Paul's prayer. Because Paul is praying about the things that will still matter eternally. That will still matter to us after we've gone into the presence of the Lord. So why is he so happy writing this troubled church? Well, he tells us, and it's for two reasons. He says, as I've been listening to Epiphras report to me about what's going on there, I am so encouraged. I know that it's a work of God that's being done in the midst of you. And I know that for two reasons. First of all, because I see the unmistakable marks of God's grace at work in you. Where do I get that? The famous trinity of spirit, signs of the Spirit's work are evident. Faith, hope, and love. Remember the, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, he's writing to a church that's being torn apart by spiritual gifts, and they're arguing over whether tongues or prophecy or uh, some other gifts are the more important and valuable and in the midst of his discussion he stops and says I'll show you a better way if if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love I'm just making noise it doesn't matter if I give my body to be burned for the faith and everybody thinks I'm a great martyr but I didn't do it out of love it was an empty gesture and then he ends by saying, now abide these three things, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Because it lasts into eternity. But this side of glory, faith looks back and looks at what God has done for us 
and looks at the promises that he has made and holds fast to them and says, yes, I will build my life on what God has done and what God has promised. That's what faith does. Faith looks back. Hope looks forward and says, this is what God has not yet done, but he has promised to do one day. And so my hope is laid up securely, though the things of this world may astonishingly change. And some of you, like me, have had huge changes in your family over the past few years. And you go, boy, I didn't plan that. I thought we had this all worked out, you know. I thought at this stage, I'd be on my back porch. You know, I won't. Just leave it at that, be on my back porch. Um, Starting to say smoking cigars, but probably shouldn't with kids here. And, and, you know, reading novels and just enjoying guests. And, and, you know, my children and grandchildren would show up to call me blessed. And, you know, they would all be thriving. And, of course, life just suddenly turns things upside down, doesn't it? But a Christian lives in hope because we know that whatever life may bring, God is king. He's sovereign. And that he will take the things that seem today most unbelievably contrary to his will and out of his control. And in the mystery and majesty of his grace, he at last will show that those very things got him glory and us good, even when it's so hard to see. Now that's hope. And he says, I see you living, looking back in faith, looking forward in hope, and living this present day in love. You have faith in Jesus Christ, you have love for one another, and you have hope for the future. And that is the mark of the Holy Spirit at work in you, and I rejoice in that. When you and I are dealing with particularly relationally with other Christian people and we're struggling and trying not to pray imprecatory psalms and put their names on it, um, we need to go here and say, I thank you for this, my brother. I thank you for this, my sister, because I have seen in this person that I'm so crossways with right now the evidence of faith that lays hold on what you've done. I have seen this person looking ahead, and I've seen this person walking in love. We once walked in love and fellowship, and I rejoice in these marks that this this is your child, and therefore we are joined together, though we feel torn apart just now. I'm not going to see them that way. I refuse to. That's how Paul was looking. That's why his prayers had such power, because they they were appreciating even those that were causing him at times the greatest heartache. He's always this way in his letter. And the second thing that he saw, his second reason for thanksgiving, was that he didn't just from Epiphras hear of these uh, absolutely crucial marks of the presence of God, but those things had happened because of the non-negotiable means by which God works. He says, when you heard the the word of truth, the gospel. It's the word. When you heard it through 
the faithful servant, Epaphras. It is the Christian bearing the gospel. And it is in the power of the Spirit. In the Spirit, he says. Always where God is doing work, he does it through his word, through a person. He doesn't drop his word down through the skylight, but through the the neighbor that comes and knocks at the door, bearing the good news of the gospel, perhaps just with a, a meal, but given in Jesus' name. Or perhaps an invitation to friendship, but that's going to grow into something that matters for eternity. And that's always the way it is. That's how God saves. I don't know about you, but I grew up in that time in the church where uh, American know-how and our, our sort of trust in technique was at a peak. And so we were always being sought, taught some new technique you know, either a little booklet that we were to read, doesn't matter what they ask, just keep reading, or it was we learned long, you know, the Kennedy uh, evangelism explosion, all that, and praise God, uh, anybody who's trying to learn and grow and go, that's great. I couldn't ever do that stuff. I just felt like a total fake. Uh, it just wasn't who I was. I wanted to hear their questions. I wanted to know what they wanted to know and where they were hurting. And I discovered that when I didn't go in there like an Amway salesman. Apology to any Amway salesman, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that's terrible. It, you would have more sympathy if you knew all the things that I managed to edit out. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like a, a salesman, you know, trying to sell them a product, the gospel. If you just go with the word in you and the spirit in you to love the person that God has put in front of you. He will use it, and you may not know until eternity how he has used you in the lives of your neighbors and your fellow workers and others whom you loved well, and they knew who you belonged to. They knew who, whose you were. That's how God does it. And Paul looks and he says, that's how it happened. This is real. This is God at work. And so I'm going to celebrate that. And then he prays for them. And this is what he prays. They're facing all these problems. And if I'd been Paul, I would have lined those problems up and prayed for them one by one. But what Paul does here is what he always does. There are only two things, finally, that Paul ever prays for anyone. And they're what we ought to pray for our children and for our grandkids and for people whom we love around us and for people that are annoying us and giving us, this is how, and we should pray it for ourselves. He prays, first of all, and you can go to Ephesians and find this is what he prays for them. Different words, but it's the exact same two things. Prays, first of all, that they will have the knowledge of God's will and the wisdom to apply that knowledge and wisdom, understanding. He always prays for those things together because you can have huge knowledge and yet have no idea how to apply it. That's Walker Percy's famous remark that you can make all A's and still flunk life. A lot of people with huge knowledge, but fools. So he says, I pray for you that you will have knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, the wisdom from God to apply it 
to know the will of God. And the second thing that he prays is for them to be empowered, not just to know it, but to do it. So he is praying for the word and the spirit. And that is how we should pray for ourselves day after day and for our children before we ask anything else for them, for our friends, for people whom we long to see come to Christ. Lord, honestly, this is how we should pray for our politicians. This is how we should pray for people on the other side from us in the culture war and then have the humility to realize we need to pray it for everybody on our side of the culture war for knowledge of God's word, deep understanding. What is God's will? How would he have me love these people well? In What does it look like? What does it mean to love people well in this setting? How do I show them the love of God right here through what I say to them, through how I respond to them? How do I reveal that? Knowledge, wisdom, and then, Lord, I can't do this unless you pour out your spirit on me. It has to be your power. And there are always two things involved with the power of the spirit. Too often they get conflated, but there's authority and there is power. And those are not the same thing. Sometimes the King James, as wonderful a translation as it was with the manuscripts it had, um, sometimes it conflated those two. But authority isn't the power to do anything. You know, you can give me the authority to, to you know, fully give, say you have the authority as our interim pastor to go break up that fight out there between those 250-pound guys that are pounding each other. Well, thanks, you know. <laughs> I may have the authority, but who's got a gun I can use? Power, power is the power that God gives in order to do what he's given us the authority to do. We are authorized to go out in his name, live in his name, make him known. But he then said, Jesus said to his disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And I love the Greek word for power that's used in the New Testament. It's dunamis from which we get the word dynamite. It is explosive power, the power of God. That's what he prays for them. And that's what we should pray for one another and for ourselves before we go into all the details of trying to explain to the Lord what he really should be doing for us on any given day. Finally, why does he pray with so much confidence? The final two verses, verses 13 and 14. He says, this is what he's already done. He has delivered you from the dominion of this world's dark powers. You're delivered from it. You may still be living here, but, but that ha has no power over you if you are walking in the truth of God's word and the power of God's spirit. So he has already delivered you from the dominion of darkness and has brought you into the kingdom of his son. You are now a citizen of the kingdom and you are serving here in a sense, much as we may love this country and for all of its brokenness and faults and things that grieve me, I'm so grateful still today that the Lord has let me live in this country at this time. Grateful to have been able to serve. Grateful for those of you that did serve or are serving. But that said, 
this is going to pass away. In the kingdom to come, there will not be Americans and Brits and Russians. We will be one people. Now, I disagree with Bono, much as I love his music, but in his song, still haven't found where I'm, I'm dating myself, I know, but this is you too, for some of you. A, a song where, and he's crying out for the kingdom. And he says, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I've found, I've tasted this, I've done that. I've spoken in the tongues of, of angels. I've had my hand on the temple. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for, he says, because I'm looking for that day. And then he gets it wrong. But it's a beautiful sentiment. He says, when all the colors will bleed into one. There's no evidence in the book of Revelation that we're all going to be Norwegians in heaven. <laughs> Much as I think that would be good, you know, or my mother's side of the family thinks that. Instead, he talks about all the kingdoms, these different rich kingdoms, those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, every ethnic group, now gathering to display the glory of humanity in all of the beauty and ethnic riches, richness of it. But that's what we're moving toward. That's what we're citizens of even now. And that's what we are supposed to be increasingly displaying to the world around us. So that's how Paul prays. He's confident because he sees the work of God and he sees that it is come in the way that God always brings it, through the word, through a faithful person, through the Spirit's power. And he prays as he always does for wisdom and power. And he prays in confidence because of all that God has already done. So remember these three things. If you are looking, saying, I, I profess Christ, I still am such a mess, where, where do I go? All of the wisdom that we need is in God's word. All of the power that we need is in God's spirit. And the way that God brings those is through our brothers and sisters. So if you are not connected deeply to a few other Christians and walking together, it ain't going to happen because that's how he does it. Who's your Epaphras or Epaphras or however you want to say his name? Who's speaking into your life and into whose life are you speaking today? This table is for those who have been brought